I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. All right. I'm glad we have Matt Baker uh, with us because it means two things. One, college football, uh, the games, but certainly the practices are just around the corner. They've already began. Um, and two, uh, I wanted to talk to you, Matt, uh, about Bobby Bowden, who uh, you know died uh, last week. And you're someone who has been around the Florida State program, covered them obviously around a lot of players that uh, were influenced by Coach Bowden, including his uh, former coaches. And you've spent a lot of time uh, not just you know writing about him over these last couple of weeks, but actually talking to through those uh, uh, about their impressions. So let, let's start there. First of all. Um, just in those experience of reporting about Bowden, what what is your what is your takeaway uh, about about just the impact he had at Florida State and on the players uh, that he coached? Um, well, th- thanks for having me on first, Rick. The main thing that jumps out is the fact that I haven't heard anybody say a bad word about him. Now, I'm sure there's Gator fans uh, listening to this or Notre Dame fans or whatever who who have some some thoughts about him as a person or a coach or whatever. But the people who know, knew him. The people who worked with him, the people who played under him, not one of them has said a bad word about the guy. Um, just in terms of what he did, yeah, I mean he was a great coach. Like let's 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 say that. But everybody talks about him as a human being and the way he treated people. And you know, I I wasn't here when 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 Bowden was coaching. I talked to him a couple of times over the years. Sure. And one thing that people have said, which which I I think, I think is true, is that he had a way of making you feel very important, like the most important person in the world. Whenever you talk to him, that was just a right. gift that he had. And in my limited dealings with him, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, shoot, he didn't he didn't know me from the, the man on the moon, but uh, we would take my call and talk to me and, and made me seem like he was actually interested in talking to me when I was calling about whatever. So that's that's definitely something and speaks to him. And, and you know, the, the fact that he was, uh, you know, he, he, he focused on football. Yeah, but he focused on all the other stuff, too. Um about family and faith and those two things were very important to him and and he lived them over the years and, and we can talk about the football impact i mean it shoot his coaching tree isn't too bad where you got uh kirby smart one of the best coaches in the game right now you got uh jimbo fisher one of the only coaches to have won a national title uh who, who's still coaching and then you, you look at the guys under that you know jeff scott's a uh in his own way is kind of part of that tree and, and manny diaz and, and so on i mean just in unbelievable legacy in football and beyond in this state. Yeah, a chance to talk to some people that played, uh, and you mentioned Jeff Scott. We'll get to him in just a second. But um, one that I know very well, obviously, was Derek Brooks, who also played for Tony Dungy. I think Tony had an impact on him as well. Not as much, though, as Bowden. And I thought it was interesting um, sort of in reading your your story on him uh, in the Tampa Bay Times and on TampaBay.com that uh, right to the end, um, I know Coach Bowden reached out to to a number of people and had communications, uh, uh, you know, right to the last couple of days of his life. Um, but it was sort of his his last words or his last um, hopes for for these folks that this, that just struck me as just just what you're talking about, just so thoughtful uh, when it came to uh, the, the people that he influenced. 
Yeah, I, I talked to Derek Brooks the other day, and Derek said, you know, a couple weeks ago he he called he called Bobby to just to to check on him. I think it was it was around the time that the the, the terminal illness that kind of became public. And again, Derek was calling to check on Bobby, and Bobby right. said, you know, I, I'm I'm fine. You know, the uh, whether God gives me another ten minutes or ten years, I'm I'm at peace with whatever whatever happens. But but let, let's talk about you. Um, you know, hmm. you you keep you just keep doing goodwill in the community and hug your babies. That's what I want you to do. <laughs> keep doing goodwill in the community and hug your babies. And that really stuck out to 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 Brooks. I mean, you know, uh, Bowden preached the, the faith and family aspects for. I mean, not just preached it, lived it, and the way yeah. and built his program around that stuff. And then you know, uh, Derek was inspired by that. Like, like you said, Dungey obviously is. A, as uh, involved in the community as, as any coach maybe ever, certainly at the NFL level. Um, but Bowden did it too. And Derek said, you know, the, the foundation that I had and all the philanthropy that I've done over the years, that started in college and it started with Bobby Bowden. And you look at Derek Brooks, one of the, you know, philanthropic, uh, huge, huge names and figures in, in the history of the, of our area, um, certainly in the athletic realm. And that happened because, uh, and, and no small part at all to, to, due to Bobby Bowden. I thought it was interesting. There's a good, great anecdote in that story about how, you know, Derek was a really good student and um, had over a B average when he graduated from Florida State. But there was a time when he made uh, a C and and Bowden called him into his office. I don't think a lot of football players get called into the office for just one C, but this was a little different. Well, it was different because it was Derek Brooks and Derek Brooks did not get C's. That was not acceptable. And, And Bobby knew that. And most importantly, uh, uh, Derek's mom knew that. So what? Yeah. So uh, Derek got called into the the coach's office and was trying to figure out what, what did I do? Like I didn't do anything <laughs> wrong. He's like, did somebody somebody rat on me? Is somebody lying about me? What's, what's going on? And then finally, he's like, what What did I do, coach? And, and Bobby takes out the, the transcript and there's a C on it. And he circles it and said, you know, this isn't okay. And then uh, there, there's a sound coming from somewhere and turns out that. Uh, Bobby had called Derek Brooks's mother, and she was on the line on speaker, and she let Derek have it. Bleep de bleep words that that Derek was not going to say, and we certainly can't say here on this family show. And then, uh, you know, I guess Coach Bowden was uh, pretty taken aback. Uh, he didn't expect that coming from Derek Brooks's mother. And then at a certain point, said, "All right, you know what, Ms. Brooks, I'll take it from here. Won't happen again." And uh, hung up, and <laughs> Derek's like, yeah, this isn't going to happen again. He said, uh, no, it better not, because if it happens again, your mom's going to come up here and whip the both of us. So, <laughs> and uh, things got better with, with Derek academically. But, um, you know, that, that just, again, speaks to, uh, to, to who Bobby Bowden was, um, where, you know, it's not like Derek Brooks was, his eligibility was in question over, over a C. It's not like right. a C is the end of the world. Right. But to, for Derek Brooks, that was not, an, you know, Derek Brooks was not mediocre in anything that he did or, or has done. And yeah. uh, so AC was unacceptable and that had to be uh, gotten across. That was the standard and Coach Bowden was going to make sure that he addressed it. And um, you mentioned, you know, uh, Jeff Scott has a tie. Obviously his dad um, coached for Coach Bowden and he was around the program very young. And um, I don't know where you got this story. This is a great, it's a great story <laughs> about, about a two. Turns out it's a two-lane mascot. That was involved. Just just tell this crazy story because it's really funny. Another time when Coach Bowden had to address somebody uh, like Coach Scott. Well, first of all, we'll, we'll talk about like serious Jeff Scott, Bobby Bowden stuff in a minute because I'll sure. be writing about that later this week and there's actual like serious football things. But I'm that's sure. way less important than the following story. Um, 
I asked Jeff the other day, just what, what are some of the memories of, you know, eight-year-old Jeff Scott hanging around the FSU program? Because his dad was a, an assistant there for 10 or 11 years, and when Jeff was like from three to 14 or something like that. Mm. So he, he lists a couple, and then he says, uh, the one, one I'll never forget, uh, when you were seven years old and you were a coach's kid, you could be on the sidelines during games. That was obviously a big deal, but you had to be seven. And one time, FSU is kicking the crap out of somebody, and uh, Jeff and a couple of, of his uh, coach's son buddies uh, got the idea, Let, let's, let's do something fun. So they sneak over from the FSU sideline to the opposing sideline and tackle the mascot. And the crowd's going crazy at this point. You know, they're kicking the crap out of somebody by, by a lot, and uh, they're tackling mascots, start beating, start beating them up, and they think it's the funniest thing in the world. They're having a, a merry old time. Uh, and then uh, Wednesday night comes around. Um, that was the family dinner evening um, where all the family, the, co- the coaches' wives, kids, whatever, would come have dinner with, with the whole team. And uh, Jeff Scott and the other guys hear an announcement on the loudspeaker from, uh, from, from Bobby Bowden's secretary. Uh, will all the children's kids who are on the sideline in Saturday's games please come to Coach Bowden's office immediately? Like, oh, <laughs> all the players were like, "Ooh, you're in trouble!" Um, and they they did. And you know, Bobby's in his office and at his desk and turns around and says, "Look, y'all can be on the sidelines. Y'all can have fun, but I can't have y'all beating up mascots. I'm getting all these letters. I'm, all these people are calling me. Please, y'all can't beat up any more mascots." And, and obviously, uh, Jeff Scott and everybody, all the other kids were like, "Oh, we're in trouble." And then yeah. Bobby was like, "All right, go along, have fun." And, and that was that. Um, my favorite part of the story, uh, Rick, you know what an, uh, an award-winning investigative journalist I am, how, how hard-hitting I am, how, how very I just, I'm impressed. Let me tell you, Matt, I am impressed that you unearthed every rock uh, to get to the bottom of a story that has been buried for years and, and frankly, um, probably should have remained that way. But uh, you, you're intrepid reporter that you are. Um, you, you've gotten to the bottom of it. And I think Jeff Scott realizes now he's met his match because he cannot conceal these kind of facts from you. No, you know, I don't want to certainly speak ill of Joey Knight, who's covered the Bulls, but uh, there's a new (laughs) sheriff in town. Uh, I am not going to stand for any uh, tomfoolery or any important details like this going uh, going hidden. So as Jeff was telling the story, which, of course, I'm laughing hysterically at because it's it's fantastic. um, I'm looking at the uh, FSU schedules over the years. Because Jeff said it was something like they were up like seventy to three or something. So I'm looking through, I'm looking through as he's talking, and like, uh, so, so who, uh, you know, Jeff, what was the mascot? Uh, and he said, oh, I don't know. And he's kind of hemming and hawing, and I'm and I'm looking at the schedule like, was it Tulane? He's like, yep, it was Tulane. <laughs> um, and, and again, I'm looking at it. They, they won one year seventy three to fourteen, and another year fifty nine to nine. I'm not entirely sure which one it was, but Jeff would confirm that it was Tulane, the, the Tulane mascot, the Green Wave, um, that he beat the crap out of. He and his buddies did. Um, and uh, I was able to do some looking. It turns out their mascot at the time was a, a guy named Gumby, which is just awesome. <laughs> and uh, Jeff pointed out that, uh, you know, maybe I wanted to keep that hidden because, uh, by the way, we play Tulane in November. <laughs> so. Yeah, you do. And, and a Green Wave mascot. I can't imagine what the Green Wave mascot looked like, but uh, it's pretty fantastic. I, and unfortunately, I couldn't get a picture um on the APY or anything like that in our, or in our archives of this mascot. So you're just going to have to take my word for it, that it was, it was fantastic. And uh, Gumby met his match that day with a seven to nine year old Jeff Scott. Well, the statute of limitations may have passed. It may be too late for anything uh, bad to happen to Jeff Scott, but uh, it's a fan, it's a fantastic story. And then, and then you mentioned you'll have more 
thoughts about uh, Coach Bowden from Coach Scott um, in the future. But um, just, just you know, listen, I, I've met uh, Bobby Bowden a, a couple of times. I covered the other team in the state at the time when they were uh, rivals in, in, in University of Florida. Um, this was just pre-Spurrier. In fact, Spurrier just got there when I left. But um, I thought it was interesting, and I don't know if this is true. It wouldn't surprise me if it is. Uh, I had someone – now, this is not great journalism here, so I'm not going to practice journalism. <laughs> Let me. It's not as good as as you know the the uncovering of the Tulane mascot. Um, did have someone though who was close to Co- Coach Spurrier and was having dinner with him the other night, and if it's true, it would not surprise me. He said that, and, and we know that you know obviously Spurrier and Bowden um, were arch rivals, Florida State and Florida during that time. I mean, you know what was it? Uh, you know, ten years in a row, Florida State finished in the top five. Which is just un- unprecedented when you think 14. about it. Was it fourteen? Fourteen years. Eighty-seven oh, to oh one. Fourteen. It's just incredible record of consistency, and a couple of national championships in there as well. But you know those those games against Florida and Florida State were legendary at those times, and uh, especially with Spurrier and Bowden. Um, but you know a lot of people were calling Coach Bowden, like you mentioned, Derek Brooks. Coach Bowden, I'm told, might have been calling people as well, and one of those that spoke to him was Steve Spurrier. Um, according according to this guy who was having lunch with Spurrier, and um, you know, I just thought, you know, it's sort of a almost like a bucket list. Let me make these calls. It just shows who Bowden was. You know, like nothing was really personal with him. Um, tremendous rival on the field, tremendous competitor. Um, hated to lose, obviously, and didn't lose much. Um, but it just, it, you know, if true, and I and I have no reason to doubt this gentleman. Um, it, it just kind of shows that you know Bowden. Uh, wanted, you know, not that he needed to make peace with anybody, but just he wanted to let everyone know, everyone know sort of how much he respected them and, and, and in his own way say goodbye. And it's just, it's heartwarming to uh, to think about um, the legacy he leaves behind and, and um, you know, and, and, and wouldn't the world be, be a better place if we could all, uh, you know, sort of had that attitude, be competitive, and yet um, this other side of him that was just tremendous. So let me ask you, uh, you know, look, camps are opened all over the place. We're about three weeks, I think, or so from them actually kicking a ball off. It looks to be like with fans, which will certainly add, uh, hopefully, um, to the college experience, however that takes place. But each program obviously has uh, its challenges going into this season and its aspirations. As usual, the University of Florida has been on the doorstep of winning an SEC title. They haven't done that yet. Um, realignment is coming. It may become harder, I suppose, or easier. I don't know just what the impact will be on Texas and Oklahoma. We can talk about that. But Dan Mullen, uh, if you're the University of Florida, what what is the biggest thing you need to figure out or at least feel comfortable with uh, as you head into uh, uh, to game one uh, these next three weeks? It's the it's the, the standard obvious answer, but it's still the answer. It's, it's the quarterback position. Yeah. Um, I, I feel confident that the Gators' defense is going to be better. Some of that, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not trying to be like cutesy here, but th- their defense was historically bad last year, and I don't think it could get much worse. Um, so I do expect some progress there. Um, mm-hmm. But they're going to go as high as Emory Jones takes them, assuming he ends up the starter at the start and then throughout the season. No, Mullen, uh, Emory fits the Dan Mullen quarterback. If you ask me to, to draw up a quarterback in the lab that, that would fit Dan Mullen, it, it would look a lot like Emory Jones, maybe a little bit thicker, but a lot like that. Um, Dan wants not just, I mean, he wants a willing, a willing runner as, as a quarterback, but ideally he'd have a really good runner. 
Um, you yeah. know, we had that with Tebow, we had that with Dak, had that with, with Nick Fitzgerald, and he's got that with Emory Jones. The question that I have is: Does Emory is Emory's arm good enough? Um, mm-hmm. I, I am sh- I am quite sure it is strong enough, but right. is it accurate enough? Accurate, and, mm-hmm. and, and can he make the right reads and the right decisions quickly to to take them? to the point where they can compete with, with Georgia and, and try and win the East again. And as we sit here right now, I don't know that. Um, I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm saying I don't have enough information to show me one way or the other whether that's going to happen this year. So that's, to me, the, the one thing that has to, you know, that, that we'll see uh, in their opener against uh, Willie Taggart and the Owls is, is Emory Jones' type of quarterback who's good enough as a runner and as a passer to, you know, put them back in that SEC uh, championship contention again this year. And I mean, you know, I, I think they ha- expect a lot and, and are fairly confident he's going to do that. Um, having said it, and they got a little bit of run up, you, you know, uh, before they start. Well, they play USF uh, pretty short, shortly after that. But how much patience will he have? In other words, um, they can't lose SEC games. I don't know how the schedule sets up, but, but will Jones have a chance to settle in uh, before they get to the toughest part of their schedule? He will somewhat because of the way this this schedule is. You know, they they, mm-hmm. they open against FAU, which is not a particularly strong team. Uh, mm-hmm. If Florida loses that or is in trouble with that, they, they got bigger issues than Emory. Um, sure. USF at, at USF in week two. USF, I think, is going to be better, but look, the Gators are should be light years ahead of them. If they sure. are in trouble there, then they're in way bigger trouble than just Emory. Right. Week three against Bama is is the one. Um, yeah. I think it's good for the Gators that they get Bama early before Bama's had a chance to kind of figure out life, assuming it's it's Bryce Young at quarterback. And um, mm-hmm. as they move on from just their, the latest elite, elite guys that they, they lost this past year. So maybe things can break well with, with Gator, the, the Gators having a chance to kind of you know, soft open and, and getting Bama before they figured everything out. Um We'll see how Florida handles the quarterback position. You know, we'll just have to see. Um, Mullen has talked a lot about and talked up Anthony Richardson, who was a blue chip recruit. Um, I, I don't know that how much they're both going to play. And Mullen has said that he wants to use both of them. I don't know if it's going to be like last year and the year before, where there's like a set Anthony Richardson package, like they did with Emory Jones. I don't know if it's going to be that, or I don't, I don't think it would be like alternating series or anything like that. So we'll just have to see, but I do know some people around Gainesville are very high on Anthony Richardson, and if Emory does slip up, you know, most popular guy on the team is the backup quarterback, and and we will see that play out. And I mean, I'll just go ahead and and we'll say quarterback to all of these, right? To some extent, I mean, it always starts there with with football, but is the same true with Mike Norvell at Florida State, who has a couple options. I, I do think the quarterback position is important. Um, you know, w- whether it's Mackenzie Milton or Jordan Travis or, or Tate Rodemaker or uh, Chubba Purdy, I would guess it's either Milton or Travis. Um, I'm not 100% sure which yet. Um, I, I do know when I, you know, when I got a chance to see them in the spring, Mackenzie Milton looked better as a thrower than I expected. Um, or excuse me, as a runner than I expected. The throwing, he didn't seem to be quite, he seemed a little hesitant still. Um, obviously, he was coming off that awful leg injury so you'd expect that we'll see how much he's been able to kind of smooth that out i think with fsu the big thing is, is the defense um because mm-hmm. yeah. they were they were not good last year they did not have a good pass rush last year i mean it was one right. of the worst in the country that's to me kind of one of the, the ways that i want to see see if they can improve it is getting that defense up to uh, up to to you know more toward respectability and then the other thing with fsu 
Mike Norvell had playmakers at Memphis, whether it was Kenny Gainwell or um, oh, the uh, the running back now with the Rams. I'm blanking on his name. Um, uh, and, and Antonio Gibson now with Washington, too. He's had dudes that could play all over the field, line him up running back, line him out wide. He, he had those type of dudes. And, and always talked about an offense built for playmakers. I want to see if this offense at FSU has any playmakers who can play as well and make the big type of splash plays that his teams at Memphis did. Cause we didn't see it enough last year. Interesting. Um, Jeff Scott has a tough schedule, no doubt about that. And you mentioned university of Florida coming in here pretty early on. Um, they do have some new digs. You've had a chance to tour that, which is fantastic for them. Uh, certainly going forward, maybe in recruiting and things like that. He's got lots to choose from at the quarterback position, but defense there, I think too, would be a, a, a big factor. Yeah, their defense wasn't good enough last year at all. And, you know, I, would, I actually got to watch some practice the other day. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm going to repeat that. I watch practice. It's, it's, <laughs> wow. a, it's a novel idea because, you know, I didn't get a chance to do that last year. Um, right. So, you know, no fault of anyone, just to, to be clear, I'm not complaining. Um, sure. But the, the one thing that jumped out at me, first of all, Cade Fortin, the, the quarterback UNC transfer, he looks good mm-hmm. to me. Um, as we sit here today, I would think he is the starter, but yeah. we'll see how it plays out. Um, the other thing that jumped out is the defensive line does not look particularly big. Um, their, their D line was, was not good enough last year. They would say that. Um, Jeff Scott said the other day that I think every program in the country outside of like Bama, Clemson, Ohio State, Notre Dame um, would tell you that they, they don't love their D line. They, they, they love to get bigger up there and, and have more guys to rotate in. So to me, that's one of the things that jumped out at USF is that D line needs to continue to grow because the, there's, there's plenty of room there to grow. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, all, all three of those teams are going to be fun to watch this year. I know uh, in the case of USF, to some extent, FSU, um, still in the process of building with new coaches that had to suffer through COVID and all of that brought last year. It's difficult to judge those guys. Um, so I'm sure they feel a lot better having at least a, a little bit of an offseason, a fall program and all of that. And hopefully we get uh, all the games in. But we could do a, a hours on conference realignment, and we probably will throughout uh, the season, I'm sure. But you wrote a, a column uh, in the Tampa Bay Times and on TampaBay.com about the conference that USF plays in, the AAC. It's interesting because you can see where programs, maybe even USF, would be attractive to other conferences if they were starting to lose pieces, as the Big 12 has. Or um, you could see maybe that conference becoming obliterated and actually the AAC benefiting uh, from some of these realignments. So, so where do they stand? Where are, do they, do they tend to be losing teams or, or maybe gaining them? My gut tells me losing, but we will mm-hmm. see. Rick, we need to do like an hour long podcast. On I know, I know we do. I, I know it's I, true. I have so many thoughts. So oh my God. I know, I know. Um, but just for the AAC here, um, my initial read when, Oklahoma and Texas announced they were going to the SEC was the AAC would, would splinter. Uh, or I shouldn't say that the, the, the top, let me back up the big 12, I thought would go into crisis management mode you know, and try and save themselves. And sure. how they do that is the same way leagues have done it over the, the, the past few years and the past few rounds of realignment. And that's bring people in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the big 12 would bring in Cincinnati they would get in uh, maybe UCF, Houston, SMU maybe, Boise, San Diego State, those type of schools. Um, USF, I think, would be an attractive candidate, but I, I wrote this and, and Bulls fans love me for it. Uh, they haven't been good enough at football. 
to where they, they haven't been relevant enough to really be in that upper echelon with, with a, a UCF or a Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. So I, my initial read was that would happen. Then there were some rumblings that maybe the best of the Big 12 would, or the rest of the Big 12, would want to go to the American. Um, the American's got a state, you know, has some stability to offer with, uh, with their ESPN deal and what have you. Here, here's where I come down, is the Big 12 still has a lot of advantages. They are going to be in for a rude awakening when Oklahoma and Texas leave, and their next round of TV rights go way down. But it's still going to be more than what the American brings in. They do have the ties to the Sugar Bowl. They are a Power 5 conference, which gives you that sort of legitimacy, and that's not like a title that gets stripped away from you immediately. So the Big 12 is more attractive than the AAC. And and the Big 12's bottom is better than the American Athletic Conference's bottom. Mm -hmm. So I think as this gets going, I would think it's more likely that the Big 12 adds the Cincinnati's and UCF's rather than the AAC adds the Iowa States and and Texas Tech's. But, you know, this round, nobody has any idea. We have no idea when it's going to play out. We have no, no idea why it's going to play out. But let me just give you my, my quick other thought. Because, again, I want to talk with this for, for like an hour someday with you. Absolutely. Um, my other quick thought. This is where I think everything is going. I think we are, cons- you know, in the coming years, I don't know if that's one year, five year, 10 years, 20 years. I think we're really moving to the idea where there's 30-ish schools. And you know who they are. Bama, Florida, Notre Dame, Texas, USC. Those type of schools break away and form their own one giant mega conference Mm -hmm. and all the big boys who want to do all the big boy things we don't you know we we want to be able to pay players directly we want to be able to pay coaches a gazillion dollars even more so than now we want our own recruiting restrictions or lack thereof we don't want directional michigan telling us what to do we're the university of michigan we're ohio state we can do our own thing so we're going to I think it will be the big boys who want to play big boy football. And then I think it will be everybody else. And I think what we saw with Oklahoma and Texas is they saw, look, SEC is closer to who we want to be in football. We're tired of giving revenue, sharing our money with Kansas and Kansas State and Iowa State that they don't, you know, they're, they're not putting up their end of the deal. We're mm-hmm. Texas and Oklahoma. We're going to be the big names and we're going to go uh, share our money with people who are more like us and make a lot more money, by the way. I think that's the first major domino and what's going to eventually lead us to that path where they're playing in a league with all Texas's and Oklahoma's and Alabama's. Um, so that's, that's my, that's my uh, enormous 30,000 foot view prediction for the next 20 years. Yeah, I, I don't doubt that. And I think it is the first, the first step in having a super conference. Um, and you're right, we could do, and we will do um, more, more time on this, this subject because it, it is constantly evolving and I, I don't know where it's all going to settle, but it is about the money. <laughs> Follow the money. There's a lot of it out there. And I think you're going to see a lot of the big boys, like you said, and conference realignments and, and whether they're conferences or they're called that or it's just one big super league. Um, you know, we're, we're going to we're headed that way towards college football. And it's amazing um, just to see, you know, for years and years, uh, there wasn't enough money for players. And I'm not saying the schools were paying them per se. But, you know, with, with all the uh, NILs and all the things that are going on um, with respect to that, there's just so much change. Um, 
it, it's going to be really something to watch uh, how this all plays out over the next couple of years. He is Matt Baker. You can read him in the Tampa Bay Times and on TampaBay.com, our college football writer, one of the best in the country, and we're happy to have him throughout the fall uh, every year, and we are just a few weeks away from games. Matt, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it, buddy. You got it. Thank you, Rick. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. All right, the Rays are continuing their series against the Red Sox. They have uh, an afternooner uh, today up there at uh, their beautiful ballpark uh, in Fenway. But as we're doing this podcast, I just want to mention this team. Somebody said this to me the other day. They were like, the Rays are winning the World Series. And I, I was like, ah, pump the brakes. Like, Listen. This team's unbelievable. They don't. They do not. You cannot defeat them. They, they can fall behind. They don't have any starting pitching, but their bullpen is lights out, and they absolutely beat the crap out of everybody's bullpen. How many? How many come from behind wins? I mean, they were down four to one, and I was thinking, mm, yeah, not tonight, boys. It's not going to happen at Fenway. And then G-Man Choi comes off the bench and and doubles in a couple runs, and then. They just explode. They've scored so many runs after the seventh inning, it's it's almost incalculable at this point. I've never seen a team um, that you you literally have to watch all nine innings because you just don't know when they're out of it. They don't know when they're out of it. Well, even when, you know, Luis Patino on two, and we're talking about Tuesday night's game because we're taping this yeah. before Wednesday night's game. Right. You know, he gives up the three-run home run. Shouldn't have mm-hmm. watched Paul Ecke before he got no, to No, that was Martinez. a mistake, yep. But he gives up the three-run home run. But kudos to him for not giving up any more after that. No, he and so he well. kept his team in the game at four to one mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for a Rays team that beats up bullpens, right? That scores a lot late, that wears you down. Right. He kept his team in the game. He stayed more innings, ate mm-hmm. up the innings, and didn't give up any more runs. And and for a twenty-one-year-old pitcher, yes, he made a mistake pitch, and he shouldn't have walked Pollecki before that. And, but, and he got in trouble after mm-hmm. that, even with the four-to-one lead. He, there yes. were some guys on with one out, second and third, I think, at one point. He got out of it, so he navigated through some tough innings after that. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's what you want to see from particularly young pitchers is yeah. they're going to make mistakes. This is sure. – I mean, he's learning on the job. Yeah. It's not going to be smooth. Those, yeah. those mistakes end up over the wall at the major league level. The AAA level, maybe not. But mm-hmm. up here, yeah, they're home runs. Yeah, but it's how you respond to that, how you come back from that, how you – you know, he gave up the uh, the first run of the game, first pitch home run, and uh, what was the second inning or third inning, whatever it was, and it was a bad pitch. He hung it, and then he came back and, and started attacking hitters after that. It was kind of like a wake up call. I think that's what Dave and Andy even said on the radio broadcast. It was kind of like a wake up call for him, and, and he got into a groove then. And then he ended up getting in trouble, give up the three run home run, but to keep you in the game, to do what that offense can do, score one in the you know one late, then all of a sudden get two to tie it, and then get the three run. You know, double from Mejia in the ninth, and they add another run on, and you win that game eight to four. I mean, that's huge. And and it's what that Tuesday night was the thirty sixth come from behind victory this year for the Rays. Incredible, just incredible. Yeah. I mean they they have that now, and, and it's not you know it's a different guy every day. Um, you know, it can it can be Brett Phillips, it can be any of those guys, and 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 they just seem to pass. I think you know I was listening to an interview. I think it was with uh, Brandon Lau. 
And one thing he said made sense to me because on a lot of baseball teams, you know, your your lineup may not be as as potent one through nine. Sometimes it's one through six, one through five. Uh, we've seen seasons where the Rays were that way. Um, and, and I think it puts a lot of pressure on those guys in the middle of the order to, to produce every single time. If they get guys on base, um, or, you know, they, they have to be aggressive. They have to be the guy that drives them in. They're not going to sit there and take their walks. And Lau kind of said, you know, we have confidence in everybody so that we don't have to put ourselves in a hole and swing at bad pitches. We can pass the baton to the next guy. And I think that's what you're seeing. And Nelson Cruz just makes, you know, that lineup lengthen, obviously, and, and, actually helps the guys around him get better pitches I think to hit um, so they can avoid him in those in those situations so it's all kind of working together but I think it's more about the confidence in each other you know they they don't feel they don't have to go outside of the strike zone um, you know to, to try to to try to drive in runs when they know the guy behind them is capable of it and I mean the contributions they've gotten hell off the bench I mean the biggest hit again delivered by your your backup catcher the other night yeah, it doesn't matter who. And Brendan Lau was asked about this after the game. You know, does the rally, is it kind of like in the dugout going, is someone going around going, all right, guys, we're not out of this one? He goes, no, we just, we know we're not. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's just kind of expected here. I mean, yeah. that's the way they do things. It's it's a nine inning game, it's not a six inning game. And we'll play till the last out. And they're going to they're gonna pitch better than you. They're going to play better defense than you. And oftentimes they hit better than you. Right, right. And no, that's, that's what gives you the best record in the American League. It's amazing, and and we'll see if the starting pitching can hold up. They get more guys back in the bullpen, which is the best in baseball, and they're beating up everybody else's bullpen. That's a recipe for winning, and right now, uh, at least heading into uh, their game, uh, their second game of the series as we tape this podcast, they were, what, five-game lead in the American League East, which is really impressive. Um, I was at the Bucs again the other day, and their preseason opener, of course, against the Cincinnati Bengals is still set for Saturday. We'll see if the uh, approaching tropical storm Fred changes those plans. It's going to be a wet one. Uh, it's going to be a wet one. Currently, it's supposed to make landfall or pass by the state uh, or the Bay Area, I should say, Sunday morning, which the, the game starts late Saturday. So that's about the time it were to end. Yep. Uh, the tropical storm would be right here. So By the time um, you're listening to this podcast, you'll know more because – Sure. Passing over Hispaniola on Wednesday, which yeah. once it gets past there, that's when they'll be able to kind of more definitively tell where the thing's going to go. Yeah, and they'll see sort of what its strength is. And uh, all I know is that these things tend to get over that Gulf water that's about 90 degrees, and they start to – it's like jet fuel. They start to strengthen pretty quickly. But um, it was too early to know um, this early in the week. Uh, you know, Bruce Arian said they're just kind of keeping a look at it, whether they'll be moved the game to Friday or Sunday or whatever it is, they'll 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 know later in the week. But right now, at least, kickoff is still set for 7.30, and they do expect it to be a wet one if they do do play it. Um, offense coordinator Byron Leftwich was absent from practice. That may be the case for a few days. It's some, for personal reasons, not COVID-related. Um, so uh, not sure when he'll be back, but Bruce Arians was having to do a lot of coaching the offense and uh, working off the scripts and the cards and all of that. Cameron Brake. Braid is back in the fold, as you know. Uh, didn't do a whole lot. Was limited to about maybe 14 snaps or so uh, in practice, but he's working his way back. And the depth chart is out. Uh, now, depth charts are one of those things that they require teams to put out before games. They mean very little sometimes during the regular season. They mean even less in the preseason. But what they typically do is they take last year's depth chart, or the one in this case used in the Super Bowl, and they pretty much just print it over. There were... There were some subtle changes uh, in them, but I think the one that 
people will pay attention to is Ronald Jones is still the starting running back. Leonard Fournette is number two. He doesn't put much stock into that. He knows it's a competition. But he also knows he's got to accept his role, whatever that role is. And he learned that lesson a year ago and then became playoff Lenny. He was ready when his number was called. Um, I believe that uh, O.J. Howard is the third tight end right now as he works his way back from his uh, Achilles heel injury. Um, McElroy, I think, is fourth ahead of Tanner Hudson, which is interesting because Tanner's been here for a minute, and, of course, Coach Arians called him out uh, for his lack of uh, blocking prowess the other day. Uh, what else do we have on that thing? It was just, uh, you know, everything else. When you have 22 starters returning, it's really not hard to pump out, you know, a depth chart because there's not a ton of, of starting jobs open this year. But um, but certainly there are battles, and, and it'll play itself out as we uh, get further into the preseason. And speaking of preseason football, since it is game one of the preseason, Bucks hosting the Bengals on Saturday. Uh, my colleague and a good friend who helps me cover the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, we do that together, is Joey Knight. He will join us on the podcast tomorrow. We'll preview the Bucks bengals and also talk to you about training camp, some of our observations out there for the first what's been now 15, I think, of these uh, hotter-than-heck practices um, outside the uh, admin health. I'll tell you what, I am awfully glad that we're not doing these, starting these at 1 o'clock in the afternoon because by the time they quit at 10, 30, 11, it is, it is very hot. Um, and, and so they've taken advantage of, of whatever um, they can in the mornings. But there was, there's been several days. Our, our tip-off is if the flags, if the flags are not moving, particularly the one that you can see from the moon, the big one, if it's still and draped across the pole, you're in trouble that day. And that's the first thing players look at is they, they look at the flag. They learn to look at the flags. And if the flags are dead, uh, chances are they will be too shortly. So um, they've had a lot of those days. And uh, I think they'll give those guys their legs back probably as we proceed through the week and get them ready, get them hydrated, maybe have a practice indoors. They were in shorts the other day, so they're starting to pull back a little bit because um, you want those rookies and those young players to look as good as they can. And they'll take a little look at the Bengals too so those guys are prepared at least enough uh, to go out there and play fast and um, and see what they got. So uh, it'll be Joey Knight with me on tomorrow's podcast. We appreciate you listening. My thanks again to Matt Baker for Steve Ersnick. I'm Rick Stroud of the Tempe Times. Have a great day, everybody. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.